now that I'm a Christian, there is a new way in which God wants me to think about things. That's really the theme of Romans 12. Verses 1 and 2 told us that we are now that we, now that we are new creations in Christ, we are to present our bodies to Him, to God, as a living and holy sacrifice. And so we've learned that our, our life now as Christians, if you are a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for a very short period of time, maybe you've been a Christian for a long period of time, but the Christian life is to be set apart, to be holy, different, peculiar. Your life now has a peculiar yet beautiful purpose. Like a, like a puzzle piece. How many of you like to do puzzles? Okay, I knew Emily was going to throw her hand up. Some of you are like, oh, I don't. We do those one, Barbara likes them. You, you like those 1,000 piece puzzles? The little bitty pieces? Those are the ones that we do, especially around the holidays. We'll get like a Christmas puzzle or a Thanksgiving puzzle. I'm going to guess we have about 30 puzzles in our closet. Yeah, we might have a puzzle problem, but it's a healthy problem to have. Imagine you're one of those, you take one of those tiny pieces of a puzzle out and it appears that this piece of a puzzle, if you were to just find one of those pieces on the ground somewhere and you were to inspect it scientifically, what would you discover under a microscope about one of those puzzle pieces? You're like, this is a piece of compressed cardboard fibers. And you turn it over and you go with some color on one side, blue. I hate, I hate the skies. On the puzzles, okay? The wheat field, okay? Uh, I like those puzzle pieces that have some data in them. I go, oh, that's a word. That's a piece of an American flag. You know what I mean? I can match it with other ones. If you were to inspect one of those pieces of the puzzle by itself, you, you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't know what its purpose was unless you were a puzzle type of person. But imagine a puzzle piece that discovers it's not just a fragment of cardboard fibers with random print on one side and funny little cutouts on all the edges. But it discovers once it sees that, that box cover picture or that poster that folds out to show the big picture, they finally realize that's what I'm part of. That's where I belong. That's why I look the way that I look. That's why I'm constructed the way that I'm constructed. I think that's what God is communicating in Romans 12 through the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church and he's saying, listen, God has created in you a clean heart, a new heart, and he's preparing you for this new life. And, and, and you're going to feel funny around old friends. And you're going to feel strange when you you're in the same situations you used to be in and you're in the middle of conversations and you're watching, you're partaking of media and other things that you used to. You're going to feel funny. There's something new to you. There's a new way that you fit into this new community and this new world. We are told that there's a new way to think about ourselves in the wise words of Switchfoot, the Christian band. There's a new way to be human and it's nothing we've ever been. There's a new way God wants me to think about things. We learned a new way to think about my body. There's a new way to think about worship. 
There's a new way to think about my mind. There's a new way to think about my place and giftedness in the body of Christ. That is, the new community to which I belong. There's a new way to think about my energy, my devotion, the things I give attention to. He literally told us last week to pursue hospitality. That word practice hospitality is literally the word pursue. That's a complete paradigm shift from the way humans normally think. It's not to give your life to other people so that they feel welcome and they feel comfortable and they feel loved. No, the normal way to think about the self is me and mine, right? Looking out for number one. So it's not as like, you know, be hospitable every now and then. No, the, no, the Bible tells you as a Christian and me as a Christian to pursue, to be diligent in hospitality. Being friendly to people. There's a new way to think about my priorities, my pursuits, the things that I pursue in life. We learned all of this. And now we come to verses 14 through 21. We're going to learn to think about some other things. Equals, evil, and enemies. Starting in verse 14. The Bible says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, right off the bat, we read this and it feels like a very tall order, does it not? Is it possible? Is it possible to love our enemies? Is it possible for us to think of people as our equals? To weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Boy, these are, these are extremely challenging proposals for human beings, are they not? They are for me. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Now, before we get into the equals part verse 14 kind of stands alone but it kind of hooks up into what he's going to talk about later about enemies and about evil there is a there is a way that we tend to react to evil especially evil that is perpetrated upon us if you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 you may remember a story of a man named Abraham And God promises Abraham, 
He says, you're to, you're to leave your country, your family, all of your, your, your father's people. I mean, every, your entire inheritance, you're to leave and go that direction to the place I will tell you to go. And wherever you go, I will bless those who, what? Bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So this began a, a century-long tradition, this idea of, of the Jewish people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to think of blessing and cursing this way. But not, but not as though God were the one blessing and cursing, but it, it, it morphed into something more human in that we are to bless those who bless us and we are to curse those who curse us. But that's not what God said to Abraham, is it? He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. But the human tendency and even the tendency of, of the Israelites, the Jewish readers during Paul's time would have this category of thinking that you bless those who bless you and you persecute those who persecute you. You curse those who curse you. Who is it on the other side of the aisle? Politically from you and me. Who's cursing us? Well, we curse right back. Right? They demonize you, you demonize them. If they want to change the rules, then you go with their rules. If they want to fight dirty, what do you do? Fight dirty. That's not the Christian way. That's not the way of Christ. That's what the Bible is saying here. There's a new way to be human. It's nothing you've ever been. Bless those who bless you, or bless those who curse you, and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you. Now, why does he say bless and curse not? The way the construction is here in the, in the Greek is that there's the assumption that the road that we're all on, the air that we all breathe, is to curse those who curse us. It's just natural to do that. And the way he constructs this command, this imperative, is that he's hitting the brakes because he knows that you are going to go in a direction and that I am going to go in a direction that we're just naturally, according to the old flesh, tending to go. So he says, bless and curse not. Stop. Stop operating the way that that humans, by and large, operate because you're different. Now in verse 15 through 16, he talks about equals. You know the word sympathy. The word sympathy means feeling with. To sympathize with someone means to feel with them. Now, what do we mean by that? Look at what he says in verse 15. Rejoice, notice the prepositions here in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, we're going to examine these in reverse order. We're going to look at weep first. What does the Bible say about Jesus and the way he relates to people? A great many things. But there's one verse, maybe the shortest verse in the Bible, I don't know. Some have said it is. You might know it. Jesus what? 
wept. Jesus wept. And we might, we might think of that verse and go, oh, that's, that's nice. It's a short verse, you know. Hey, I memorized a verse in Scripture. You know, Jesus wept. But oh my goodness. How much truth is embedded in that statement. That Jesus wept. When it comes to showing us how to really be with people. Jesus is unmatched. Why does God, who is unchangeable, omniscient, omnipotent, transcendent, uh, impassable, why does He take on flesh and dwell and weep with sinners like us in Jesus? You know, the Bible calls Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Does that ever just blow your mind? Does it ever just break your heart? That God would want to be with us? In Christ, God has communicated His desire to be with us. To be with you. To sympathize. To be with us. He came to be with us in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when you question whether or not God would ever want to be around you, and we do, don't we? For, for a plethora of reasons. One reason is, is because people, friends, family, neighbors, whoever it might be, people that are close to you may have even said that or made you feel that way some, sometime. I don't even want to be around you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to look at you. I don't want to talk to you. When, when you feel as though people are repulsed by you, you've sinned against someone, you've hurt someone, and, and their way of protecting themselves is retaliation or communicating to you that you are not a person worthy to be with. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. When you don't feel worth being with, look to the cross, brothers and sisters, because God says to you very clearly on the cross, He wants to be with you. He sent Jesus, His Son, to show you that. Do not disregard the authentic presence of the Lord and His love for you and His desire to be with you. Look to the cross and be encouraged that God is with you. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ and you surrender your life to Him, from that point on, there is not ever a time where God is not with you. If you're in Christ, God is with you. Amen? Be encouraged by that. And so because of that truth, because we are with God through Christ, then how should we think of other people? 
We should not be averse to weep with those who weep. It's uncomfortable sometimes when people weep and when they mourn and when they grieve. Well, Lord, forgive us if, if Grace Fellowship Church is not a place where we can weep with those who weep. Sometimes we're tempted in our society today, the way that churches operate, to just be happy, 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 happy all the time. To put on a happy face, get through the worship service, everybody's happy, no weeping here, no grieving here, no grieving over sin, no weeping over the way that you feel or anything like that. We're just going to put on a happy face. No, far be it from us to, to go against God's word here. Weep with those who weep. Who are you with? Who are the people that you know closely? See, the word doesn't say here, attend with those who attend. Show up with those who show up. Sit in seats beside those who are sitting in seats. <laughs> right? It, it says weep with those who weep. That's the, that's the, 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 the dirtiness, the, the griminess of relationships and getting to know people. Jesus didn't say to the crowds that followed him, to the people that were around him, reaching out to touch his garment, wanting him to come into their home. He didn't say, I have no time for you. This is a ministry of joy. <laughs> he wept. Who are you weeping with? Who are you with? Now the second one seems as though if it's even more of a tall order. You think, well, wait a minute. It seems harder for me to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. What does it even mean to rejoice with those... Who rejoice. We need to be clear on this because just this week there was a post, uh, a picture posted all over social media. Heartbreaking. Disgusting. It was a picture of a young teenage girl who had had her, some body parts removed because she wanted to look like a boy. And her mom was standing next to her. Her shirt was open. She had scars on her chest. Her little brother standing next to her. Mom was gleefully smiling. And people were sharing this picture all over social, social media. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. In the mother's decision. To lead her daughter. To have this physical change. Because of how she felt about herself. And many people around the world were sharing this picture and gleefully rejoicing that she had this done. I do not believe that the scripture is telling us to rejoice in the same way that other people rejoice about things they shouldn't be rejoicing about. There are things we should rejoice about and things we should not rejoice about. When a school shooter goes into a school, a deranged young person goes in and takes the life of dozens of innocent people. We should not rejoice in that. Though, they might be rejoicing in that. The shooter, that is. Or other deranged people with them. The rejoicing that's talked about here is a proper kind of rejoicing. The things that the angels in heaven would rejoice about. So why is it hard for us to rejoice over those things when other people are rejoicing over those things? Because of pride. We want others to rejoice over us, don't we? Rejoicing might be more difficult 
than weeping because of envy and covetousness. John Chrysostom once said that it requires more of a high Christian temper to rejoice with them that do rejoice than to weep with them that weep. For this nature itself fulfills perfectly. And there is none so hard-hearted as not to weep over him that is in calamity. But the other requires a very noble soul. So as not only to keep from envying, but even to feel pleasure with the person who is in esteem. I must confess, I find this very difficult at times because of my own pride and my own envy. Do you? Do you struggle? Do you find it difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice when they receive the good news? Maybe even the very same good news that you were hoping to receive? When someone else is promoted to the position that you feel that you have rightly earned, that you've worked so hard to gain. When someone else is recognized for their accomplishments while yours seem to be ignored. How do you respond when others rejoice? God's word tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. I told you it's a tall order. But this, this is what God commands of us as Christians and empowers us to do. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. To not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think of others as our equals. Then he moves on to talking about evil. Now, he says about being equal, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. How do you esteem yourself among your peers? Now, this is difficult. I saw a pastor just this week, a friend of mine who's in a different part of the country, who posted this on social media this week. He said, discontentedness is the key to success. Well, that sounds good. That's something you find in a leadership book, right? That a good, motivated leader would say, if you're content at your job, if you're content in life, then that means you're just coasting. You're not driven. You, you, you have no aspirations. You're not a driven leader. Is that what God's Word says about contentment? No. God's Word doesn't say that, that His people are to be discontent in order to be successful or, or successfully obeying Him. No. Jesus actually says, take my burden upon you. My burden is what? Light. My yoke is easy. It's light. What kind of signals are we are we sending when we talk about this type of estimation? What do you think about yourself? You got to think highly of yourself. You got to think more of yourself if you're going to succeed. No. That's not the way of Christ. That's not the way of the cross. The Bible says he humbled himself. He humbled himself though equality with God was something he could have seized and said, "I'm not going to the cross." I'm going to call 10,000 angels. We're getting out of here. No. No, he humbled himself. How do you think about yourself among your peers? Is it Christ-like? 
The second thing is evil. There's a shift in the way Paul talks about how to treat others. He goes from talking about other Christians to now talking about how to behave towards those who do not profess Christ. And he talks about evil. In verse 17, Paul says to never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And to respect what is right in the sight of all men. It may at first glance seem as though Paul is saying that there are universal maxims of right living or good living in every culture that Christians should acknowledge and try to live up to. Do you see that there? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men. As if every culture or every person has their own version of right and our job is to figure out what their version is and try to live up to that. Right? Tolerance and moving the mark and all those things. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, hey, try to figure out what your neighbor or what someone else in the world thinks is right and then try to appeal to that. That's not what he's saying. As if it's some universal maxim. But actually, and I love how Leon Morris explains this, he says, he's calling them to live out the implications of the gospel. Because the implications of the gospel are good and are right. The gospel is good and it must be lived out and applied in every culture in the sight of all people. That is, the gospel never changes. The good news is always good. No matter what, no matter how a person bumps up against that, no matter if the gospel is like mixing oil and water in a culture, it's always good. It's always right. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God. And so we have to be faithful in an evil culture. We have to be faithful to the gospel. It is good. It doesn't mean that we're indifferent to the culture. It doesn't mean that we're purposefully abrasive, but we're faithful to the good word. Even though the way of the world is to take revenge, he talks about revenge here, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. This idea that there's something owed. Even though the way of the world is to take revenge and dish out the evil that you receive from others, it is not to be so with the Christian community. Now that I am a Christian, there's a new way to be human. And it is not to take revenge. The gospel changes, we already discovered this, our positional holiness. Remember that? We are positional holy before God. That is because of what Jesus has done for us. When God looks at us, we are in a new position. That is, he looks at us with grace because of Jesus' blood covering us. We are positionally holy, yes. But also, we are relationally holy before the world community. That is, we are to be relationally holy before the world. We are to be different. 
They are to see us as people who are different and set apart. Sometimes a little weird, right? <laughs> Didn't get any amens on that one. Okay. The gospel has implications for the way in which we live. And we do not behave as the world does when it reflexively pays back evil for evil. There's just this reflex in the old Adam of repayment, getting back, getting even, harboring hate, letting it swell, letting it grow, devising plans for payback. But how can you have peace and satisfaction when someone does evil to you? How can you have that? How can we be at peace when we feel wronged? You have a Redeemer that they don't have. You have a Redeemer who lives and who is conquered over sin. Though evil seemed to win over him as he was crucified and low lowly laid in the grave. The Bible says he did not open his mouth. He didn't defend himself before his evil accusers. The Bible says that rather he, as Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross and entrusted himself to the will of the Father. And so must you when encountering evil, if you are his disciple, because he tells you and he tells me, if you wish to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Evil. We respond to it differently because we're new creatures. And then finally, enemies. Verse 20 through 21 he says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, mark your spot there and turn over to Proverbs 25 in the Old Testament. Scholars are not in agreement, full agreement with what is meant by heaping coals on someone's head. You may have heard of this reference before. But in Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22, we see what Paul is referring to. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Paul is referencing the Old Testament. Now, some would say he's also referencing a cultural practice from Old Testament days. Some scholars suggest that this was something that was practiced particularly in Egypt. 
But scholars are not in, in agreement on what the motivation is. Some would say that the heaping of burning coals on someone's head who is your enemy uh, is a way to shame them. In that while they have these coals upon their head, they are uh, embarrassed about their actions. Uh, some would say that it wasn't to shame them, but it was, to, uh, it was actually a good deed to remind them of the kindness done to them that they didn't deserve. That wouldn't lead them to shame, but it would change their outlook and their character in the way that they also thought about their own enemies. I tend to lean towards the latter. Nevertheless, the word tells us that doing our enemies good will, in fact, encourage them to be our friends. Say, well, I've tried that. Doesn't work so well. How long did you try it? How did you persevere? In doing good to our enemies, we will be the pursuers, which is in agreement with all the rest of this passage. In doing good to your enemies, you are proactive in pursuing peace. In the same way, that as new Christians, we are to pursue hospitality. See, this is not a passive action. We're not on the back end of this. We're on the front end. Of all people in the world who should be pursuing peace with their enemies, it's Christians. It's those who take the name of Jesus Christ. This means we must be proactive and not reactive in peacemaking. While the natural human reflex is to resist peace with our enemies and passively wait for peace to occur over time, we, in our new humanity, we are to pursue peace with our enemies regardless of their posture toward us and do it joyfully. Pursue peace with our enemies. He says to be overcomers in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see the comparison here? The, the tail is no longer to wag the dog. But it's in reverse now that you are in Christ. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't let evil leverage you and change your behavior and make you less like Jesus, but you overcome evil with good. It is easy to be overcome with evil when we lose sight of what Jesus has done for us. The Bible says we were dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. Hopeless. This does not only mean that we possessed no righteousness of our own, but that we were the very enemies of God. When you think of the, of the cosmic order of things, we tend to say, well, Satan's the enemy of God. Yeah, but we, we listened to the voice of Satan and we brought all of creation under corruption because of our choice in Adam. We are not the victims of the fall. We are the villains of the fall. 
The rest of this world is crumbling because of us. We are not passive in the fall. We were the very enemies of God. Listen, when we were justified in Christ. Do you see that? That's the beauty of the gospel. We are not justified in Christ after we have attempted to live the right way for a long enough period of time that we get ready to receive that justification. Okay, God, I've been going to church for a long time. I married into a Christian family or I own a Bible or I bought a Christian t-shirt or whatever and I think I'm ready for this now. I think I've, I think I've done my part. I've come 50% of the way. That's not how salvation works. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. You were justified when you were God's enemy. When we can fully grasp that, when we can live in that, when we can understand that we went from enemies to sons and daughters in one moment of grace, it will help us overcome evil with good, to love our enemies. Remember the gospel the next time you think of your enemies and those who hate you. As your flesh plans ways to retaliate and get revenge, remember what God did for you and when you were his enemy. How he turned you into his friend by showering you with grace and mercy in the precious blood of his son, Jesus let Jesus work on the cross, encourage you not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. And the same overcoming power that raised Jesus from the dead is present in every single believer who has the Holy Spirit living within. With his help, you and I can and will overcome. 